Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Imagine this, a science teacher, an art teacher and a history teacher walk into a digital meeting space. Sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, not at all. It's another episode of the Game Changers podcast series. Eric Scheninger is an associate partner with the International Centre for Leadership in Education. He was an award-winning principal at New Milford High School. He is a person who lives and breathes ways in which schools, teachers, students, communities can take the big step forward and up. He's a real thinker about the way assessment works in the new world of education. I'm really excited that we get the chance to talk with Eric today, Adriano. Let's go. Well, Phil, it is so awesome to be with you again. How is uh, the wonderful harbour of Sydney travelling at the moment? Well, it's just um, it's a bit grey, actually. Right. A bit miserable? Yeah, a bit miserable. A bit like the personality of most people from Sydney. Ah, uh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Well, you, you walked into that one. I'm sorry. I'm oh, very that's sorry, right. Phil. That's That's all right. But putting that aside, I'm really excited for our, our next guest, uh, a guest who's going to be on our Series 5 of Game Changes. Can you believe, Phil, we're up to Series 5? People, people keep turning up for to, to listen to these two blokes uh, wax lyrical about education, an important topic. Eric, it is wonderful to have you with us today. I'm going to ask you the very first question, a question that we ask uh, all of our Game Changes, and that is, Tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. I will, but it's hard. I just want to sit here and listen to the banter between you two because it's so entertaining. Uh, you know, after spending a whole day in a, in a school, I'm like, oh, this is great. But actually, the whole day was even better. So, you know, it, my story is, is pretty much like everyone else's, you know. I, I think many of us, our mindsets are confined and restricted by that's the way we've always done it. And, you know, if we're not really either pressured or compelled to change, we don't because comfort is the enemy of growth. And I was no different. You know, I, when I became a, a principal at a fairly diverse school, you know, we just kept chugging along, uh, following pretty more or less the same trajectory. And it wasn't until 2009 that uh, a student kind of gave me a wake up call. And uh, it happened after I was out of breath because I had just chased him with my assistant principal through the building because he broke one of our many policies and rules that kids could not stand. And that was the rule on mobile devices. He had his device mm -hmm. out, broke the rule. So we chased after him because they knew that we meant business and we would take the phone for the entire year. And as we cornered that student, he proceeded to thank me. And I'm like, I look at my assistant principal, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. A student thanking us for doing our job to create an optimal learning environment. And then a zinger came. Thank you, Mr. Scheninger, for creating a jail out of what should be a school. I will tell everyone this because it is the truth. If you really want to know how well you're doing in education, ask your students. 
use digital tools so that they're honest with you. And, you know, make sure that you don't take things personally and you're open to feedback. So that weekend I was at home uh, in New York City where I previously lived and I was reading a newspaper article and that article was about Twitter. I swore I would never be on social media because I don't have time. It's not going to help me be a better leader. It's distracting. All these excuses. And I saw a connection to my professional practice. I saw how Twitter could help me be a better communicator. You will not find an effective leader who is not an effective communicator, whether that leader is a teacher, an administrator, anyone. And I got on to communicate. And I'm communicating all the great things we were doing in my school, and they got creepy. I talk to creepy people all the time because I was a lurker. I was a creepy lurker. And we have so many lurkers in this world. But here's what happened. I don't care if you're a lurker. At least you're in the space. I lurked and I learned how far behind we were. I learned that we had a long journey ahead. I learned that there was no perfection. And I learned that success did not come from one person, i.e. me as the principal, but the collective effort of my teachers, my support staff, and my students. Fast forward five years later, our school became a globally recognized institution for innovation. We improved achievement across the board. Why? because we constantly ask the question, how can we improve? And uh, you know that journey continued. Now I'm here talking to you all and I've made, I can't even count how many trips I've made to the great country of Australia, mm -hmm. um, but I found that same passion. We need to understand no matter where we are that we can still work to get better. So that's kind of like the mantra I live by. I was going to, I'm going to ask you a question about uh, success in learning in a moment, but I'm really intrigued about uh, where this young man is today that you had this epiphany with. And um, does he know the influence that his voice and courage has had on your transformation? Yeah. And I honestly don't know, because I don't know. I don't know if he accepted my Facebook request because I never, <laughs> I never friended students until after I left the principalship. Sure. Um, it, it's pretty widely known and, and it wasn't just that student because mm -hmm. that student might have been the, the initial catalyst, but then we started holding organized, structured meetings with our students to elicit their feedback mm -hmm. uh, on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. So even though he might have given me the kick in the butt that I needed, it really was the collective effort of the entire student body who was willing to open up and be honest but they saw that their values, their voice, you know, we talk about student voice as a means for agency all the time, but what does it truly look like? And it's not just voice in the classroom, it's how students use their voice to change school culture. But if we're not willing to at least give them that venue and act on some of the things that they are suggesting, if they have not only great rationale, but strategies for how it's going to improve culture, then we really need to rethink our role uh, in education. One of the interesting things about a pandemic is we never like to let it, a good crisis go to waste. And one of the things that we, well, a couple of the things that we have learnt, particularly here in the, in the state of Victoria in Australia, because we are a, a district that was in lockdown longer than any other district across the globe. And so teachers and the profession and schooling had to pivot to a very new paradigm. And the three things that were really clear that we gained, that we learned from this was that wellness comes first, that time is now fluid, 
and that we have to reimagine learning structures that we once you know, were wedded to such a, such a strong timetable of you know, sit and get and everything was ordered. And the third thing that, that really has been amplified is that community is king, whether it's locally, regionally or globally, and how we can continue to include community in the development of each young person in our care. What does success in learning look like to Eric in 2020? Well, it's not what success looks like to me. It's what success looks to our, looks like to our kids. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand that the education system around the world pretty much has functioned the same way for centuries. A one-size-fits-all approach where it was pretty much sit and get the teacher as the expert and not, not really focusing on the passions, the strengths, the interests, the skills and preparing kids with the competencies that they needed. So when we think about what learning should look like, that's gonna look different for every single kid. And and the way to really bring it, and and I think the pandemic has really shed a light on some of the deficiencies in our education systems. Uh, And we have to be honest, and it's not a negative, you know, this pandemic is horrible, but there's been many opportunities opportunities such as if all kids are doing the same thing the same way at the same time, that is, does not equate to learning for many kids. That's conformity. That, that's compliance. You know, when we look at things such as time, as you mentioned, we look at place, which is now virtual. You know what we've learned is that the physical space, physical school does, is not for every kid. Yeah. My own son went back to face-to-face school in September. And then after a week, he decided he came back home, wanted to come back home. And my son is number three in his class of 862 kids. And that place is, he, he likes to sleep in a little bit. He likes to play video games during breaks. Um, he likes to take a nap if he can. So, you know, I, I think we have to look at how we truly begin to embrace a more personalized approach. And I'm not talking about putting every kid on a device using an adaptive learning tool at the same time. That's not personalization. Personalization is a fundamental shift from what we teach, what's in the curriculum, what kids need that the school says they need to a focus on the who. And then work from the who, our learners, to the why. Why are we learning this? Mm -hmm. Then to the how. How will I use this outside of school? And then the what. What will tell me if I am successful, that what will look different for every single kid, because I don't believe that uh, kids are learning disabled. Kids learn differently. Now, I don't know about you two, but if a car breaks down, I can't fix it. But those learners are the ones that will never do on a structured test, that one size fits all approach, yet they are our most creative, innovative thinkers and problem solvers. So with this personalized approach, it's moving to more blended pedagogies. Such uh, you know that incorporate voice, choice, pack, pace, place, but understanding that our outcomes can't be our outcomes. It's what do our learners need for success now and in the future. The world of work has changed. Kids need to be able to self-regulate. They need to be experts in remote collaboration. They need to be able to think critically and solve complex problems that are connected to real-world scenarios. They need to exhibit emotional intelligence. They need to be able to manage their time and they have to be creative thinkers and doers. This stuff is not new per se. Maybe remote collaboration and self-regulation or have a greater emphasis, but this is not new. 
but no, it's, yeah, Eric. Eric, of, of course, it's not new, and, and 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 people have been talking about this for the last twenty to twenty-five years. You know, listening to you talking there about the 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 attributes of what our kids need to be, it reminds me, of course, of our, of our graduate outcomes from a school for tomorrow that have emerged from the research that we've been doing over the last decade. So, you know, we talk about good people and future builders. We talk about continuous learners and unlearners and solution architects. We talk about responsible citizens and we talk about team creators. I, I want to explore for a bit with you, if I can, and, and tease out with you this whole notion of seeing what is possible, you know, and, and listening to you talking about your son and, and the way in which he, he likes to take naps. Uh, do, do you know, I've learned to take naps this year. It's been wonderful. Like, you know, we've had these very, very long days and I, I, I know I'm getting old. So, you know, but not only have I learned to take naps, I've learned to meditate this year. And that's been a real eye opener for me in terms of being those two things have, have allowed me to be a better version of myself in the presence of other people. There's a couple of other things I've learned this year and that's Adriano and our regular listeners will know I've fallen out of love with examinations. If they were ever relevant, I can't see how they are now. Do you know, I'm going to make another admission now and Adriano, this is a big step forward for me. I've fallen <laughs> out of love with essays. I can't see the point in the essay for 98% of students. There will be some people who will have a need for writing uh, that particular mode of extended response. But the reality is, and, you know, we've, we've been looking at this as we've been reconstructing the master's programs and professional development programs that we run. Nobody needs to write an essay. And asking people to express themselves in a form, in an assessment mode, which is not in any way relevant to the world that they're going to live in, is a bit like looking at those graduate outcomes that we talked about earlier and preparing kids to function in the 19th century world rather than the 21st century. I want to explore with you the notion of how do we help people to see that this stuff is necessary? You get it. The mighty DePrado gets it and gets it better than just about anybody I've ever met. How do we help people to see that this stuff is not only possible, it's necessary, and that we have a moral responsibility to prepare students to thrive in their world as opposed to perpetuate a system that's broken? That's the million dollar question. And if any of us are able to answer that, well, <laughs> you know. We could return. Our lives, yeah, our lives are in a totally <laughs> different direction. You know, and I think it, it falls in line with a lot of different aspects of change. And, you know, it does come down to mindset, but we have to look at what are those things that are holding us back from where our learners need us to be. You know, we have to understand what we are and in order to get to what we want and what our kids need us to be, we got to take that leap of faith. But to get there, we have to conquer either fear and a great quote from Zig Ziglar, fear, forget everything and run or face everything and rise. And the other aspect is what I mentioned before, comfort. And, and comfort can come from a, a lot of different uh, factors. But when we look at comfort and fear, people want to know, all right, if I'm going to take this risk, if I'm going to get out of, and, and this is what I hear all the time, Eric, this has always worked for me. Yes, it's worked for you, but has it worked for your learners? Mm -hmm. And those questions like that really put people in a tizzy. But you know, it, it really is about looking at how we create a culture. I, I, I test the word buy-in. Buy-in is an extrinsic motivational force 
that is driven by if-then rewards. Yeah, have, and, and, and Eric, we, we, we talk about a life of purpose. We talk yeah. about that, that inner world. And, and there is a wrestling between the inner and the outer. And that's the reality of the world. And when we, when we talk about character development with students, that's what it looks like. You're always wrestling between what's inside and what's outside. But if you're not being led by your, your sense of purpose, you know, you, we, we struggle. I, I wonder to what extent, I mean, you've done some fabulous work in the area of, you know, your pillars of digital leadership. Uh, is that a tangible example of helping folks to take that big step forward and up? Because, you know, that's a real barrier for a whole bunch of people. And you've already alluded to, you know, that, that journey that you took. I took a similar journey around it, you know, and Adriano's helped me a great deal in coming to terms with and, and not only coming to terms with, but thinking about how we, how, how we can actually thrive in a digital space. Do you think digital yeah. leadership can help? Yeah, the, the pillars of digital leadership for me when I started drinking the Kool-Aid and the little blue bird was chirping in my ear, I needed to see the value first. And I had a purpose, but I needed to see how was this going to help me be a better principal? Because then in turn, my job was to build capacity amongst my teachers and not sell them on just, a, you know, this is just another thing we have to do. But when you, we looked at, when we formed those pillars, it really was about, here's the work that is embedded in our roles every single day. So no one is asking you to do more. This isn't just another thing. It is how do we improve student learning and outcomes? That's a responsibility for all of us. How do we do it more creatively? How do we do it aligned to the latest research? How do we back it up with evidence? Looking at learning environments. I don't even talk really that much about physical spaces anymore because right now they're not a thing because of social distancing. But when we look at the learning environment, you know, is it personalized? Is it equitable? Would you want to learn under the same conditions as your kids? You know, would you want to learn the same way? Looking at professional learning. I don't like professional development because I've been developed and that's not something I necessarily wanted to do. It was done to me. So as we look at these elements, it's about the practicality, but the, if we really want people to change and give them that sense of purpose, there has to be autonomy that leads to ownership. But we also have to show people more exemplars of what it actually looks like. And before the what, how do we go about in doing it? Teachers and leaders are afraid. They want to see how do we do it? How will it improve? And then, you know, that purpose is all dependent on the amount of feedback that we give. You talked about evaluation and assessments for kids. Well, we also have to talk about evaluation and assessment of educators, which is another antiquated system that has to change. If we give more timely, practical, usable feedback, that is one of the keys to really drive change and use those pillars to actually become that sort of foundation. But the beauty of education is teaching is an art. It's part art, it's part science. And there's a lot of, I guess, wiggle room within those pillars to chart your own path, just as we want for our kids. You know, it's interesting sitting here listening to you, uh, Eric, because clearly you and I are drinking from the same Kool-Aid, right? Um, we're, we're subscribing from the same hymn sheet. And we can, I can go on with, with lots of other uh, analogies in that regard. Um, 
one of the challenges that we continue to face in education is the barrier around those individuals that you spoke about from the very top of the show that sit in that pocket of comfortable or comfort. Now, it could be because it's familiar. It could be because they genuinely believe it works and it shows results. It could be because it's from a position of deep fear, you know, the fear of changing and so on. And one of the things that we continue to keep hearing is, and they keep sprouting research, of course, around the fact that you do not learn something better if you figure it out for yourself, that testing is is a highly effective way to boost learning, that you cannot just Google facts when you need them, that broad world knowledge is essential to reading comprehension, that achievement boosts motivation, that evidence shows that effective world-class education is about the explicit teaching in a wide range of subjects. And we keep hearing all these kind of things that are our current paradigm and would appear to be countercultural to what, what you and myself and many others are now actively agitating for. How can we continue to help others? Because can I tell you right now in, this, in the Australian context, they're the majority. How can we continue to help others see the possibility of personalization? see the possibility of self-determined or self-directed learning, the, the importance of emotional competency as being you know, a, a, a massive emphasis in, in, in any kind of learning ecosystem. How do we see them that test results and standardized tests and, and league tables are the biggest dead end in education and have been for a long time? How do we help them see the possibility of a better normal as opposed to the comfort of their today? Well, one way a hard way is to put them through the same exact experience that their learners are going through and have them experience that and then shift it and have them go through a more authentic inquiry-based experience that's personalized. Uh, Many of the schools that I'm working with here in the United States, uh, that's how we do our professional learning. Mm -hmm. It is emulating the same environment. And a lot of people want to know, like, well, what's, what's the right answer? People always ask me to tell me what to do, Eric. And I'm like, that's, that's not my job. My job is not to tell you what to do. My job is to get you to think about what you do and to come to determination of how you can improve, whether it's through small wins, whether it's an incremental process or totally blowing up what you're doing. But, you know, I, I think many people, I know for me, I was motivated by results. Mm-hmm. And when we saw that these shifts resulted in not just how we were judged by data, every data metric improved, but it was really through the polling and getting the feedback from our kids and really getting their bird's eye view of how much they appreciated the learning culture, how they felt that they could share their their strengths, their passions. Students going on record saying, I was going to give up on school until I had this. And we did so many things. I don't have enough time to talk about it. But it comes back to one of the topics we already discussed is, is success. And, and I think that the major lesson we've learned during the pandemic is, you know, whether we talk about, and people use the words reimagine, uh, transform, restart. I don't care what word you use, but we have to fundamentally be honest about is our teaching helping kids learn? And there's a big difference. Instruction is what the adult does. Teaching is what the adult does. Learning is what the kids do. And you brought up a lot of really great points. You know, if we want knowledge, we can go get it. 
what kids need is they need to understand how they can use that to construct new knowledge, how they can do things that they couldn't do before, how they, when they're confronted with perplexing unknowns, they can dive into a toolbox of innovative solutions. And the world is changing so fast. Now, before the pandemic, we still are in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution, artificial intelligence, advanced yeah, robotics, yeah. automation. One day we'll be in the fifth. Yeah. But are we preparing kids for a world that no longer exists? Yeah. And after so, a thousand classroom visits in 2019, yeah. the answer is yes. Of yeah. course we and, and of course we are. We 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 know this. And there's nobody in their right mind now, and there's nobody in education, there's no voice in education that we have heard this year, not even the most conservative voice is denying that. All of the voices that we're hearing are arguing on the basis of practicality and efficacy. They're sitting there and going, it's just too hard, which is a bit like saying, well, look, we know we've got to get to the top of the hill. We know it's essential, but it's just too hard. So can we just stop here? Yes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not just teachers, it's whole communities that uh, are dealing with that struggle. And, we, you know, we talk about the courage and kindness, the courage and the kindness that, that leaders need around this. What are some of the ways that you've seen schools and school communities partner with parents, with teachers to support student growth and achievement in this new paradigm? Yeah, and that's a great question. And, and I have to decide which example I'm going to share. Because another key to success that we have to think about is how we move past the traditional sit and get drive by professional development and move to more job embedded ongoing models to support teachers so that we can really focus on longitudinal growth over time. So, you know, I will use the story of my daughter and my daughter, uh, we moved to Texas from New York city. Long story short, don't take a picture when you're working in Hawaii, send it to your wife who's digging out of a foot of snow in New York City. <laughs> That's why we live in Texas now. There we so go. <laughs> we, moved, we moved there and my daughter went to a very traditional school, highest performing in a district of 120,000 kids. And in our area around Houston, they're building all these different, uh, we're building schools left and right, populations increasing. So she was faced with going to a new school just for her fifth grade year before she went to middle school. And the principal who knew me from Twitter stalked me and she'll admit that. And she said, Eric, if your daughter comes to this school, she's going to love learning every single day. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you what this school did. You know, I was their coach for three years. We focused on building a foundation in rigor. And by rigor, I mean challenging kids to think relevance, blended pedagogies, you know, this school had no homework because it was banned. It was bring your own device, kindergarten through grade five, portfolio-based assessment using a combination of Seesaw and Google Classroom, real blended learning, not blended instruction, and flexible spaces. When they got tested for the first time, they were the second highest achieving school out of hundreds. But mm. here was the difference every teacher embraced the vision and the mission. It was focused more on feedback. They used data to group, regroup, to provide targeted instruction. They focused on the multiple pathways for kids to show that they understood. 
it was focused in creativity. But every teacher believed, going back, when we think about purpose, every teacher believed that this was the better way. And when it was all said and done as a parent, my daughter did awesome. But the fact that every day she talked about school, and I will tell you, this school is has won awards here in the United States. It's no secret they they improved through traditional metrics. They did it in ways more with what our learners need to survive and thrive in this world. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that learning and growth and achievement became the intrinsic motivation of the young people in in that learning community, as opposed to the extrinsic motivation of simply grades and, and um, you know, test results and, and GPA averages and so on. And, and they, they cultivated and they fostered a deep love of learning so that these young people became these kind of continuous learners and unlearners that in today's context, the world that you described a moment ago, and it's not just about COVID, we, we, we've been in, in a different world for many, many years now, yep. you know, uh, because of so much that's going on in regards to resource scarcity, climate change, you know, the advancements of technology, demographic shifts and so on. It's clear that these young people have developed the necessary skill sets of adaptability and self-efficacy to thrive irrespective of what circumstance they find themselves in. And it's interesting because I, I got to go back to something else that Phil asked because it was a, a, a loaded question in terms of many layers, but sure. the parents. Yeah, yeah. When we were doing this, the parents were the biggest obstacle. Yeah. The parents wanted their kids taught. The parents said, why are the teachers not doing any work? Why do I got to go on seesaw? These parents were my friends. <laughs> and here's what the district, here's what the school did. They did blended curriculum night. They did blended learning night. They brought the parents in and had them go through the same type of experiences as, as the kids. And then when the data was off the charts, the parents got to see the outreach from the school, the experiences. So I, I needed to go back to that because they worked with the parents as well. And we see that. We see that parental force in many private and independent schools as one of the biggest barriers to change because the parents are like, I'm paying for my kid to go to this school. Mm-hmm. And, and you all know what I'm talking about because you have a lot of private independent schools in your country. Yeah. And it's that mindset of parents, we're paying for this. This is what we want. That also inhibits growth and change. Yeah. It's really interesting about this, this parent paradigm. I mean, I, I, don't want to, I don't want us to sit here in judgment of them because you know, the reality is they, they have been hardwired to think a particular way as many teachers have. And, and, and the reality is their, their experience predominantly of school was when they were in school. And so, exactly. And, and yep. so, so, so they think that's the way it should be done. Yep. And, and, you know, like a, a maths class would be do column left, you do the left-hand column and your reward for getting it done early is the right-hand column, you know? Um, and, and, and that is something that they've been, you know, very much used to. Um, and that's why I told you my story because that was me. Yeah. Yeah, I was sure. used to traditional methodologies when I began as a principal and I did the same thing, but you're right. Yeah. We are influenced by our experiences. Yeah. And sometimes so, it's hard to break through. So it, it's this legacy that's going to be a challenge to break through. Um, but I want to ask a, a different type of question because, you know, being a, a, a person of, that was a science teacher, um, you know, us in the visual arts and in science, we have an affinity because a lot of what we do is about inquiry, you see, not like our friends in the history area. They're just about oh, boring please. facts, boring, boring, please, dry, boring, please, dry please. Uh, facts. So, so 
I'm interested in, um, uh, you have a sentence on your website, uh, Eric, that's, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it out now. When we experience the sensation of awe, we are consumed by wonder, relevancy, emotion, engagement, inspiration, and real world connections. I love that, by the way. I just absolutely love that because it just, it takes me back to, to the classroom of, of the design classrooms where, where th that sensation of it being relevant uh, is this revelation in a young person's mind that they, not only do they belong, but they are capable and that they're making a contribution that's meaningful. How can we curate more moments, more aha and all moments in the learning communities that we lead? Wow, that is a difficult question that I do not have one definitive answer for. You know, I, I think we have to go back and really reflect on why did we go in education? Why did we become teachers? Why did Phil decide he wanted to focus on teaching about dead people? Because that's what my, my daughter said. She goes, history, dead <laughs> But you know, but but in all seriousness, are there boy, was. Are, are, you, you know, are you boys quite done? Are you quite done? <laughs> there, 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 there was a reason. Like, I, you know, for, you know, Adriana, you, why, why did you go into the arts, Phil? Why did you? What was your passion for history? And when you really start peeling away the layers, maybe it was the how your teacher built relationships. Maybe it was how he or she brought it to life. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was how you were challenged. You know, for me, I became a science teacher because it was a combination of uh, growing up during the summers uh, at the beach and fishing with my grandfather to having a seventh grade teacher who was doing personalized learning back in the 80s. Didn't care about grades. He didn't say, hey, learn about, you know, tell me about Mars. He, has, he basically said, how will you colonize Mars? That experience was an experience of awe because he had us, he put us in teams. We got to pick our topic. We had to all jigsaw solutions together with our prototypes that we built with our hands that would help us colonize Mars. We wrote research papers. We did research in encyclopedias. We built working prototypes. We then paper mache the whole room, made it look like the surface of Mars, brought our parents in and showed them what we learned. Who was your classmate, Elon Musk? <laughs> you know it was jason palermo uh, <laughs> and um and and, and the, you know, i think i went to his restaurant in new jersey palermo but anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but you know that experience i don't know the grade i got in that class and i don't care yeah but yeah. i do know that that experience helped shape me not only into the teacher that i became but the person i became so I, I think awe really aligns with the concept of, you know, personalization, mm -hmm. you know, where mm -hmm. all kids get what they need, when they need it, where they need it, mm -hmm. that their path will look different, that they might need to work at a different pace to achieve the goal, mm -hmm. that they might have to choose, you know, you know, what tools, what supports are the best and I can go on, but but that awe is that you know going back to what Phil talked about. Before, it's it's purpose, it's yeah. it's meaning, it's it's belief. And, and so and, how would you? And these young people are on, on that on that on that search as much as any adult is, right? And so I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, if we start, if it all starts with belonging, because you touched on the on, on a word earlier on about equity. If it all starts with belonging, and and that we build 
a, a, a strong circle of trust in that character apprenticeship between the teacher and the student. And at the heart of that, of course, is that the, that the young person feels known, they feel valued and they feel loved. We've then created this space of safety, psychological safety for them to take those risks, to, to enter into the place of wonder and awe, because you never know what you're gonna discover, whether it is in any history class about a civil rights movement, whether it's in a visual arts class and talking about a Miro or a Picasso or, or a Dali, or whether it is in a science class where the first time a young person gets to experience you know, a dissection or, or, or see an experiment in front of them of, of an explosion of sorts. I wonder going forward, are schools communities though really committed to this notion of creating this sense of belonging where equity and diversity and inclusion is real and tangible, where people are seen, they are heard and they are valued and not just given lip service in a beautiful, nice statement packaged on a website? Yeah, and it's difficult to answer because until the world starts moving away from competition, PISA scores, ranking one country against the other, you know, we're not hearing and seeing these stories of what real learning should look like. We're not. But, you know, when we think about, you know, the whole emotional piece that really is the gateway, you know, this is a saying that's really drawn out here, but it, it still has so much meaning. It's Maslow before blooms. Yeah. And it all comes down to relationships. Without trust, there's no relationship. If there's no relationship, no real learning occurs. What's real learning? It's, it's relevant. It's engaging. It's authentic. It's lasting. And we also have to look at our priorities. And it, it's not about preparing learners for something because we don't know that something is anymore. We need to prepare our learners for anything. And, you know, we have to focus on the uh, emotional and social issues in some cases, first and foremost, because that then becomes the gateway to challenge kids to think and then apply their thinking in relevant and meaningful ways. But, you know, I, I think going back, people are scared, but you know what, right now, all of us, we are in the, the biggest clean slate moment of our educational careers. Every single person, I don't care what your role is, but in education in particular, you have a clean slate. You have a clean slate to reinvent, reimagine, transform your practice in ways that are going to better meet the needs of your kids. And those needs are different. But the challenge is, will we take advantage of that in light of what we focus too much on, all these challenges, which sometimes inhibit our willingness to move forward, even though internally we may want to. Eric, Eric, um, uh, I want to talk to you about those inhibitions in a moment. I'm just hearing you, hearing you guys, um, uh, I've been really enjoying the conversation the last few minutes, and uh, but just hearing you talk about Elon Musk, I just want to give a shout out, quick shout out to Greg Hassenkamp, who is the principal of Pretoria Boys High, and the, the wonderful team there, Pretoria Boys Hire, are, are, are fantastic clients of ours in a global research project around excellence in schooling and what it looks like. And one of the, one of the categories of that is about growing the whole person, which is exactly what you're talking about there. Eric, I, I want to take this down from the stratosphere and deliberately use that word, of course, because the day we're recording, this is the day that you know SpaceX put astronauts up, up, yeah. up, up, in, up in orbit. Um, so good day to be talking about Elon. I want to bring it down right to the grassroots level. We've been involved in a wonderful learning festival over the last 
week or two at the time of recording in uh, November of 2020, which has been put on by the Learn Life folk and it's been called Relearn. And it's gathered all sorts of really interesting thinkers in this moment around where to next. The question I've been asked the most in the past week has been by, I'll call them young teachers. They're not necessarily young, but they're young in the profession. And they've got an idea, they've got a passion, they've captured that sense of awe and they feel as though they can't do anything about it. They feel as though the system won't let them take the big step forward. Now, part of this might be reticence. Part of this might be the perception. Part of this might be not wanting to stick their head above the parapet. Part of it just might be that they need support and encouragement. What is your message to those educators, those chalkies in classrooms who want to do what you're talking about, but feel as though they can't. Oh, now I'm going to preface this as my response might not necessarily be the best course of action. Um, because I lived by the saying, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than beg for permission. And I don't know how it is in your country, but in our country, uh, we have a challenge of getting rid of ineffective teachers and administrators. So what it really comes down to is what do you really have to lose? And the answer is nothing. So I, I think when we look at the system, if you know you are doing what's best for kids, if you are getting results, then you the hope is that the system will open their eyes and minds to how can they support growing that practice and growing that teacher. I did so many things as a principal and I got slapped on the wrist so many times and they were learning experiences. But make no mistake about it, I was employed for my kids. That was my job. That's who I ultimately reported to and that's how I treated my job. I also say that you know, many individuals that feel they cannot initiate change are teachers. I get it all the time. I'm a classroom teacher. What can I do? you could do a heck of a lot more than a principal because you're actually doing the work in a classroom with kids. And leadership isn't about position, title, or power. Leadership is about action. I am only here today because my teachers decided to buck the system. They decided to take calculated risks. They embraced different and better. And then we improved the work. We shared the work and we celebrated the work. So, you know, using that equation, people can impart change, but we do not want to sell ourselves short. We have to look at our position and yeah, maybe we just start in a classroom. Maybe we start with a school, but we should never be satisfied with that, but we got to start somewhere. So my message to them is there are so many other people like you across the world that feel exactly the same way. The decision now is, will you act? Because actions change things. And we can always focus on the yeah buts, but we need to focus on the what ifs. The what ifs define a growth mindset. And always think about it. What is the worst you can lose? Now, I'm not saying go and do things to lose your jobs. But I'm telling you this, if you do everything in the best interest of your kids and they are nurtured, they are protected, they are safe, who is anyone to tell you what will ultimately happen 
hopefully, is that you will show the system that this is a better way to do things. But you got to believe in yourself first. So if, if we take that notion, and, and to a certain extent there, Eric, um, this is an interesting conversation because the three of us are outliers. You know, and the reason why we're outliers is that look at where we've ended up. We haven't ended up as classroom teachers. We're not that person who becomes a classroom teacher and spends 30 or 40 years doing the work. We're, we're people who made a choice at some point that we were going to support or, or enhance um, the role of the most important people in, in helping students to grow and to learn and to grow in character and competence and wellness, and that's teachers. So that teacher who is sitting in the middle doesn't necessarily have that personality type, which is perhaps as brazen as you might have been, is, is not necessarily the sort of person who wants to get into conflict, is the sort of person who, who looks for harmony and consensus more. I wonder if there's a way in which we can help that teacher to play around the space of assessment, because you know what it is, it's, if it's not for assessment, it's not real. That's because, <laughs> you know, that's, 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 that's the way it is. And, you know, even when you were talking earlier about you know, a shift away from over-reliance on internationally benchmarked tests and standardised tests and so on, and to, and to connect with real learning, at some point we still have to assess whether or not learning is occurring and what that type of learning is and what the next step for the student in their journey might be and some sort of summative assessment about, you know, the milestones of learning. So how can we help teachers to play with assessment perhaps um, okay. as a way of connecting with taking the step forward? So I'm going to come back to assessment, but I, I did like your connection to Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. and my, 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 One of my favorite authors. And, and that book, along with Drive by Dan Pink, yeah. Lynchpin by Seth Godin, The Alchemist by Polo Coelho. I read those all in one summer during my huge epiphany, and it really changed my thinking. But you know, when you look at things like assessment, I'm not opposed to assessment. My problem with assessment is we don't do anything with it. We don't use that data to then really change our instruction. I rarely see differentiation where that assessment can be so valuable, where that data is used to really give kids you know, what they need. You know, I rarely see the data as part of pedagogy sound blended learning, such as station rotation, choice boards, playlists, flipped classroom. So, you know, I, I think when we look about assessment, we have to look at A, you know, are we collecting good data? But B, are we using that data to put the kids on a different trajectory? That's where blended learning comes into play. It's, I'm not telling people how to collect the data, um, but is it good and does it inform instruction? And does it allow, one of the best examples of differentiation I've ever seen was how a teacher used data, benchmark data, to create two different choice boards for kids. It was still on the same standard, but choice board A was for those kids that weren't just there yet and working on the, them developing those mastery skills. Choice board B was to get those kids to go to the next level, more exploratory. So I also think that we have to look at, you know, the connection with how the assessment is used to give kids feedback. You know, feedback is how kids are growing and, you know, uh, working towards uh, attaining the standard. You know, is it practical? Uh, is it informative? Is it something that they can reflect on? So I'm all for assessment, but you know, when we look at assessment, what about giving kids the choice of how they're going to be assessed? Because kids' trajectories are different. We know what the standards are, but you know, you kind of said something before, you know, 
is about the essay. Well, some kids, I'm not saying don't let them write, but I remember talking to a, a, a grade seven student in a science classroom and the questions were awesome. They were very challenging, but she had all one word answers. Now, as a science teacher, I asked her and I'm like, hey, can you explain this to me? I'll tell you right now, she couldn't stop talking. So then I said, well, how are you going to be graded? Well, we're going to turn this in. And I go, you know, your responses aren't going to help you get a good grade. She's like, yeah, but I just don't feel like writing that much. So I said, if you had a choice to write out your answers or respond using video on Flipgrid, what would you choose? Video. So I think with assessment, we can't pigeonhole our kids into just one way to show that they learn. So, you know, but I think it goes back to teachers want to see examples. Teachers want to see how they're doing these authentic-based assessments or how they're differentiating and personalizing, and it's still helping them get those state national benchmark scores, which will not go away. But the more examples, the better. It comes back to the, our leadership again, which is where we started this conversation. It comes back to us having a model for our leadership and having a model for practice and um, putting that into play. Talking of, um, of uh, talking and talking forever, we could. I think uh, continue this conversation for a long, long time. But I think I think at this point, this is this is this is a good this is a good place for us to wrap up. There's so much in your ideas and your thinking and your experience and the way you draw it all together, Eric. That that gives me encouragement and it gives me hope. And and I very much hope um, it does for our listeners as well too. There's a wealth of knowledge in there, and I, I just want to extract that one little gem from the middle of our conversation today which was saying there are so, so many people out there right now who just really want to do this thing. It just means taking the big step forward and up. And, and I want to thank you for the way in which your work continues to inspire, to challenge and to support people all around the world, as well as in your home country, to make that difference in practice, uh, which of course is connected to purpose, which is of course is connected to the people. So thank you, Eric. We really appreciate your time with us today. My pleasure. Thank and you. just for the record, I, I love Sydney, by the way. When I visit, <laughs> lovely, lovely city. city. So uh, that when we first started this podcast, I, 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 I had to say, you know, I, I love Sydney. Okay. Yeah, well, well, you, well, well, Eric, you can get stuffed now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the check's in the mail. Well done, mate. <laughs> the Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.